So we are busy studying First uh, John. We continue our study in the book of First John. And there were a few verses which I never got to finish last week from chapter 4. So we are going to finish First John chapter 4 this morning. My goal is to uh, do three verses. I'm sure I'll be able to finish that. But just a quick summary um, that what we've been learning so far in uh, this letter of First John. Uh, remember... There are three tests here that John gives us. Three tests to know for sure whether we are abiding in Christ. And to know whether we are walking with the Lord, whether we are in the faith. And he gives us a moral test. And the test is simply, do we obey God's word? He gives us a doctrinal test. Uh, Do we believe what God's word says about Jesus? And then we have a relational test. Do we love one another? So those three tests are there in the, in the scriptures and he goes through those with us and we're busy with the, with the third one at the moment. But in these three tests, he also attacks three lies that are connected to these, these three tests. Now, there's a, in the moral test, he talks about a moral lie. And people say, well, I can know God and live in immorality. And he tells us, no, that is, that is a lie. Um, people can't walk with God and live in disobedience. That, that's a lie. Um, the second one is the doctrinal lie. People say, I can know God and deny what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. And he deals with that in, in chapter 2. Uh, the, the, the truth is we can't know the Father while denying what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ. The third one, the relational lie. People say, well, I can know God without loving the brothers or the sisters or the church. And that's a lie. If what a man does contradicts what he says, John says that he is a hypocrite. And that's what we're going to look at. Um, This third test again today, which John addresses in this passage this morning. So let's um, let's read 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 17 to verse 21. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, And hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother. Well, let's pray together before we study God's word. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning with gratefulness, Lord, that you first loved us. And as we gather together, Lord, we know that you are, the, you are the author and the finisher of our faith, Lord. You are the one who has chosen us to be your children. You are the one who loved us while we were yet in our sins. And you have given us this gift, Lord, to love like you loved us. So we pray you help us to understand the implications of this and to understand how it personally, practically is displayed in our Christian lives. 
And Lord, as John has been uh, trying to help us see, we pray, Lord, that we would not uh, become doubtful, Lord, in our, in our walk with you, but rather, Lord, we would become confident, seeing the Spirit of God living in and through us, that we would know for sure, that we would have beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are ours and we are yours. So we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our, our ears to the, the truth from your word this morning and help us to conform. And I do pray, Lord, if there are people here this morning, Lord, who are not sure, who are still in doubt, that are not sure that they are abiding in you, that are not sure that they are even knowing the love of God, that they would turn to you this morning, that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So we pray your spirit do the work amongst us this morning. For the sake of your great name we ask. Amen. Well, the title of my message this morning is We Love Because. Because, because, because. There's always a because about different things in life. We do this or we do that because of, because of something else. There's a car bumper sticker I read once that, that said, I owe, I owe, so it's off to work, I go. Very true. Um, we go to work so that we can um, pay the, the debt that we have. Um, what's your because this morning? Why do you do what you do? And why do you do what you do? Why do you believe what you believe? And why do you love people like you do? Well, in our text, John addresses this question. Why do you love others? That's the question that we're going to be looking at. But he answers those questions for us. And we're going to be looking at um, this in these verses. And my first point is simply this morning. We love because of him. We love because of him. This is our motivation. And we see this in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. So remember the context of this, this verse. Um, in verse 18, John tells us perfect love casts out fear. So this perfect love that casts out fear and gives us confidence before God comes from God. This is not something that we can manufacture on our own. This is a supernatural love that comes from God himself. There is no credit that is given to us because of this, this love. In the King James Version, it says in verse 19, a little more accurately than, than I think the ESV, it says, we love him because he first loved us. It doesn't say that in the ESV. But John's point in this context is that if we love God or if we love anybody else to any extent with this agape love, this genuine biblical love that, that John is talking about, we need to remember that such love did not, it did not come, it did not originate within us. It came from God who loved us while we were yet sinners. It is evidence that we have experienced his love in a, in a saving way. I read a wonderful illustration this week that really encouraged me about Christopher Columbus, one historian by the name of August Kling, he wrote a book called um, Columbus's Goal, God, Not Gold. 
And he was a specialist on Christopher Columbus. And he, he said that Christopher Columbus, he used um, the Bible um, and is documented in all of his career. Uh, he says, but this is one of the least known facts to the general public that Christopher Columbus was indeed a, a believer. He says Columbus was a careful student of the, the scriptures. Um, Christopher Columbus spoke Latin fluently. Um, he knew Greek very well. He knew Hebrew very well. And he learned those languages so that he could exegete the, the scriptures. And all of Columbus's sailing journals, they give evidence of his, his biblical knowledge, his biblical understanding of the scriptures. And his, and his devout life for, uh, his devout love for, for Jesus Christ. And here's a quote um, about Christopher Columbus. He, he says, It was the Lord who put into his mind um, to sell him to the Indies. And then he says, I am a most unworthy sinner, but I have cried to the Lord for grace and mercy, and they have covered me completely. The fact that the gospel must still be preached to so many lands in such a short time, this is what convinces me. And what a wonderful, wonderful truth that, that I, never, I never knew before. The reason Christopher Columbus sailed to the new world was because of the love of God. It wasn't his goal to receive gold. That wasn't his motivation. What motivated Christopher Columbus was the, the love of God. And we saw last week the example of David Livingston. And this week we see another example of a man who was motivated by the love of God to share the gospel of God's love to the unreached, people who didn't know about God. And from these records we have this wonderful evidence that Christopher Columbus's life was, was not devoted to providing earthly security and comfort for himself. But rather his devotion was to the salvation of the lost and to the glory of God. And that doesn't happen with a normal, ordinary, worldly type of love. This is a love that is supernatural. This is the agape love that John is talking about. People don't give up their lives and devote themselves to the glory of God because they have a worldly type of love. This is an agape love. This is a sacrificial love. And Christopher Columbus's life and career is recorded for us. And we see that it was all motivated because of the, the love of God. He loved God because God first loved him. And that is really why we demonstrate love to others. Because he loved us. And he continues to do that. It is an ongoing type of love. And if you're a believer this morning, you would understand that. We want to display his glory to the world. We want to share his love with the world. And that's what John is speaking about this morning. Well, my second point is simply this demonstration. We see this in verse 20. We love because of God's love. We love because of God's love. Look at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Then in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
So John's saying this message over and over again because he knows what a challenge this is in our lives as brothers and sisters in Christ. So remember the context. He's writing to the church. You know, it's a simple message to talk about, but this is a profound message to, to live out in our, in our daily lives. And the message is, in a nutshell, that true love to God is always demonstrated by love to other Christian brothers and sisters. Someone asked me this morning, how can we know for sure? What evidence is there that the Spirit of God is living inside of us? And that's a great question. Well, John gives us the answer here. He gives us one evidence that we can look towards. If the Holy Spirit is living inside of us, it is demonstrated by our Love for other brothers and sisters in Christ. And John is saying here that the latter tests the former. So our love expressed to one another in the bonds of Christian fellowship tests our claim to love God. Do we really love God? That's what he's asking here. So the latter proves the former. Our love to one another in the bonds of Christian community, especially in the local church. Especially in the local church. Look closely at the the very first sentence of verse 20. So here John talks about the evidence of our love to God in our love for one another. Look there, he says, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. Very strong words there. John is not mincing his words here at all. And John is telling us, That love for God and lack of love to Christians reveals a lie. It's a falsehood in our claim to know God. You know, love for God and a lack of love to Christians reveals hypocrisy. It reveals hypocrisy. We cannot say that we are Christians and walking with God if we are not loving other brothers and sisters. It is hypocrisy. And when we claim to love God, and yet we lack this basic love for Christians, it reveals that we're not telling the truth. Hypocrisy, not telling the truth, lying. This is all connected. And John puts it more bluntly. He says, we lie. He says it clearly here. And the visible evidence of our love for God, John is really pressing home here. He's pushing us to a point. And we're going to get to the application in a moment. But this is found in our love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christians, especially in the local church. But of course, also within the the visible body of Christ, the universal church. But I want you to see that, that John's key point here is not emotional. It's not that we always have these warm, fuzzy feelings towards one another. When he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And, and we may be tempted to think, well, I don't hate anybody, so I'm okay. I don't hate anybody. Those are strong words. This verse doesn't apply to me. Well, you would be wrong to think that, okay? To hate means, in this case, in this context, it means to fail to show love in any practical and tangible way. That's what it means. If we fail to show love when it was needed... If we fail to show love in a practical way, when we had opportunities, 
If we fail to show love in a tangible way, then we are hating that person. You know, often we send out prayer requests and we have prayer teams and we have people that pray. And that's a good thing. And we need to do that more often. But isn't it hypocrisy to say that I'll pray for that person when there's something tangible that you can do for that person in their time of need and you don't do it? And that's what John is saying. That's not just an oversight. What John is saying, that is hate. That's a strong word that he uses here. This is hate. And in the case of the false teachers and their followers, it was to show hate by dividing the church. Remember, they were saying that they had a secret knowledge, that they had a a higher knowledge, and that people needed to come and listen to what they were saying. These were the false teachers. And John was saying, look at their lives. Are they showing love? No. They are dividing the church. They are doing everything they can to break down the church. They, They don't love the church. They hate the church. So John uses this word in a, in a very practical way. We could show a lack of love in many ways in a Christian congregation. And John is calling us as believers to show love to one another in practical, tangible ways. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Turn there with me if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul gives us a A wonderful description of love that helps us to practically understand this challenge. We read it last week. Remember what Paul says about love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 and 5. Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. So love is patient. Love is kind. And love is not not jealous. So how do we love one another in the bonds of the Christian church in the local congregation? Well, by being patient with with one another and kind to one another and not being jealous or or envious of of one another. And Paul goes on to say that that love does not brag. Love Love is not arrogant. Now, there's no room for, for love and pride in the same heart. And what he's saying is pride is the enemy of love. And it's not the expression of love that, that God calls us towards. And love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. And so in our relationships with, with one another, we mustn't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. And we need to be considerate of each other. Love does not act in, in a rude manner. It does not insist on its own, on its, for its own way. Love puts others first. And love seeks the best interest of another at our cost, at our expense. And investing in people is costly, folks. And there will be effort that is required. But the, what John is saying is we need to be doing that. That's how we are to love in the Christian church. Now, love is not irritable or resentful. That's what it says in the, in the ESV. In the New American Standard, it says, Love is not easily provoked and does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, how many of us keep these, 
these black books in our minds that we, we write down people's wrongs so that we don't forget. Well, that's not love. I mean, how many husbands and wives do that? When an argument comes up, I remember you said this. I remember you did that. Well, we're all guilty of it, but it's not what God calls us to, isn't it? And in the context of the local church, you can experience many great wrongs. And many wrongs and that, that you would suffer from different people. And Paul is saying that love doesn't take into the account a wrong suffered. How many of us are guilty of that? Love is not easy. You know, it's easy to talk about, but it's, it's harder to do. And why do you think John keeps coming back to this point? Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Look at verse 6. He says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices within the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. The, new inter- in the NIV, the New International Version says, Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. So what do you delight in this morning? Here's my challenge to, to the youth here amongst us. Think about this for a moment. What does your heart delight in? Now, what are your favorite movies that, that you end up watching? Do you enjoy movies with a, a theme of immorality or unrighteousness or fornication or revenge? Or debauchery? Or do you rejoice in the truth? What do you delight in? If you are encouraging one another in, in immorality, you are not loving as the scripture commands us. Because it tells us love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love does not re- delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Of course, the same goes for us as adults, isn't it? Now, what do we encourage one another in? What do we rejoice in with one another? In righteousness? In truth? And Paul goes on to say that that love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. So love sticks. That's what 1 Corinthians is telling us. True biblical Agape love sticks. And this is the kind of love that John is calling us to express in the life of the congregation. And there are always unique challenges to that because, because we're a faith family. And we, we all know that living together, even in our own ordinary families, is, is easy, but it's also hard at the, the same time, isn't it? You know, it can be the easiest thing but it can also be the hardest thing, all simultaneously at the same time. You know, for one thing, you can't choose your family. You know, your family is given to you. It's there. And once you marry, you have a mother-in-law, you have a father-in-law. They're yours. And you have cousins and everybody else that comes with that package. And you know there are some wonderful things about that, but there are some hard things also about that. You know, my physical family... I enjoy, but we have a weird family. 
we have a fantastic family, I think, as well. And just this week, I looked at a, a WhatsApp video that my kids sent to their cousin back in South Africa. She turned 14 years old. And so my kids did their best to, to gross her out and make her laugh at the same time. So they decided to sing happy birthday to her while they had these, these party whistleblowers jammed into their nose, into their nostrils. So they were singing while these, while these things were going up and down at the same time. I mean, it was a hilarious video. It was funny. It was strange, but, but it was funny. But this is, what their, this is what their cousin wrote back. I can maybe show you the video if you want to see it later. Um, but this is what their cousin wrote back. And she said, she said, you can't choose your family. But if I could, I would still choose my mad family. Smiley face, heart, heart. You know, our faith family should be, should be similar, shouldn't it? To a certain extent, you know, we, we ought to have a love for our family, for our brothers and our, and our sisters in Christ, especially in the, the local congregation, despite our differences. Amen. But loving the family can be hard. It's not going to be easy. There's no hurt like the hurt that happens in our family. You know, there's no wound like the wound that can be administered in the family. And to love in that context is a, is a great challenge. And John knows that. Paul knows that. And the scriptures speak into that context. And John is saying, you, you can't talk about loving God all you want. But if you can't love the family of God, don't tell me that you love God. You see, John is articulating for us a, a profound principle here. That our deeds, our actions, reveal what is in our heart. Our deeds, our actions, reveal what is in our heart. Our actions show our nature. Do we have the nature of Christ? Or do we have the nature of the world, the flesh? And we do what we are. And this is, this is case. And in this case, a real love to God shows itself tangibly in actions. In loving and caring and showing concern for one another. You know, I'm sure there are, there are people who fake love and concern for others. I'm sure that happens. You know, but our belief will always affect our behavior. And the claim to love God while there is a lack of love in our relationship with other Christians will always show up. And people will see the hypocrisy. They will see that hypocrisy. John calls these people liars. And so John is saying, true love to God is always demonstrated by love to our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. But notice the second half of verse 20 there. Here John elaborates on this contradiction. Those who claim to love God and not loving their brothers and sisters. Look what he says. For he who does not love his brother whom he has Seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So John is saying that it is impossible to love the invisible God while you are not loving the visible saints, the visible church. Now someone once said, to affirm one's love for the unseen 
while failing to love the seen, is to enter into the realm of fantasy. The author's unknown, but I think it's a very accurate biblical truth. To affirm one's love for the unseen while failing to love the seen is to enter into the realm of fantasy. And the person who fails to love other believers cannot possibly be truthful in his claim to love God. And that's what John is saying here simply. Love for God expresses itself in our loving concern for other Christians. And that leads to my third point. My last point in verse 21. We love because of his first love. And that is just simply obedience. Simply obedience. And here's the commandments. Look at the commandments. In fact, it's a double love. It's a double love. He says, And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. See the double commandment there. So here John reminds us that that God's commandment to Christians is to love God as well as the brethren, as well as the brothers and sisters in Christ. So God's own word of command indicates that to love him and to love the brethren should not be separated. It should not be separated. It's part and parcel of our responsibility and our duty as Christians. See, love is is not a suggestion. And we've spoken about this. Love is not a suggestion. It's not even an option. It's not something you do if you feel like doing it. It's a divine command. It's an obligation for the Christian. Everyone who loves God loves his brother and sisters in Christ. It's a command. And John Stott, a famous commentator and preacher, he said, Every claim to love God is a delusion if it is not accompanied by unselfish and practical love for our brethren. Talking about that tangible love, that practical love. Don't delude yourself. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're a believer when you have no love for the church or for other Christians. There is evidence. If you love Christ, it must be displayed in your love for others. So let me apply this truth, okay, as we, as we come to a close. And John's been circling around this application for, for the last chapter, and I want us to concentrate just on, on three areas here, how we, how we need to apply this, this truth practically. I think the first area is, of course, in our marriages, in our Christian marriages, we, we who claim to be Christians, you know, especially in the church. We have friends, but marriage, and the Christian marriage is really the proving ground of love. It's more than just a friendship. And there cannot be people who do not know the hurt and pain that can come in the context of marriage. We know that it's not easy because we live in a broken world. We live in a corrupt world where there is still sin. So marriage is not easy. But yet God has ordained 
that our love for him would be manifest in our love to our spouse. Especially we who profess to be Christians. If we've been called to a Christian marriage, then our love for God is manifested in our love for our spouse. And that means that Christian marriage is is a battleground for our faith. And it's a proving ground that there is grace between us, between you and God. It's really the soil, it's the the nursery for for growth and grace. It's a place where we, we learn what love really is. And that is one reason why, why Christian marriage is so important. And the next time you, you struggle through your relationship with your, your spouse and you try and figure out, you know, for the 137th time how to make it work and why you are having these arguments, remember there's more at stake. There's more at stake than your happiness. It's the proving ground of your love. Some wise man said to me once, when I was having some pride issues in in my marriage, he said to me, Gareth, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Those Those were wise words. Do you want to be right? Do you want to... Do you want to pick that battle and, and fight even though you're right? Or do you want to be happy? Well, of course I want to be happy. But that means I have to adjust. That means I have to compromise. Well, what's more important at the end of the day? And that's what John is telling us. We need to remember this is more than just about our feelings. This is about how we reflect Christ to our children. This is how we reflect Christ to the world around us. This is how we reflect the gospel. Are we humbling ourselves to each other? Are we serving each other the way Christ served us? Are we loving like Christ loved us? Marriage is a proving ground for this love. Secondly, Let me talk to the issue of our friendships, of our friendships in the church, in the congregation. And I think one of the biggest challenges we have as a church is, of course, the transient nature of our society. This year, New Life Church turns 10 years old, and more than half of our church, probably 70% of this congregation is new, (laughs) It's not the same as it was 10 years ago. And the challenge in cultivating love and friendships in the life of this congregation, of course, is to, is to make sure that these are gospel friendships. That these are gospel friendships. You know, it's so easy, especially in our context, to, to want to come to church so that we can be part of a community. Any community, it doesn't matter. As long as I'm part of a community. You know, you've heard people say, well, that's the American church. You've heard people say, well, that's the South African church. You've heard people say, that's the the Filipino church. But people want to be part of a community. Well, our friendships need to be based not on our culture, not on the things that we have the same interests as, but our friendships need to be based on the gospel. The gospel. 
If our friendships are, are based on what we have in common, then what we have is really a club, isn't it? We have a social club. And that's not what we call to. We call to love despite our differences. We call to love because of our differences. And God loves the diversity in His church. And we know that one day heaven will have people from every tribe and every tongue worshiping God. And really the local church is a, is a small little picture of what heaven would be like one day. So the challenge to love is of course to make friends based on the gospel. Not about our natural similarities that we may have but based fundamentally on the gospel. Do we love one another for that reason? Are we intentionally building relationships with people that are from different countries than than we are? We should be. That's what we're called to do. Or are we just sticking to the group that, that we are comfortable with? We need to stretch ourselves for the sake of the gospel. We need to stretch ourselves for the sake of this Biblical love. And the challenge from Scripture this morning is to, to reach out. To reach out across the, these boundaries of, of comfort and familiarity. To seek to enter into gospel friendships with others that are, that are in this congregation. With others that we may not know well. But we need to get to know well. And remember the purpose Remember the purpose for each and every single Christian is to glorify God and enjoy Him. That's our purpose. And we glorify God by encouraging one another, by coming alongside each other, by discipling each other, by provoking each other to love and to to good works. This is what biblical love is. John's words exhort us this morning if we're truly going to love one another as God says in his word then we need to seek other people in the church seek them out and to form these gospel friendships with them and of course that's going to take time and that's going to take effort and that's going to mean that you're going to not be able to watch TV with your spouse again but that's okay that's what God calls us to do To go out of our comfort zone. And the third point of application, the last point this morning. John's command is is one reason why discipleship has to happen in the context of the church. You know, once you become a member of this church, once, once you become a covenanted member of this church, you know, you've committed yourself to help us as a church. Fulfill the goal the Lord has given to us as a body. To make disciples of Jesus Christ. That is our goal. That is what we aim towards, to do. To make disciples of Jesus Christ. Everybody in this church becomes the context for our Christian discipleship. And we have to learn how to, to love each other. And how to get along with each other and how to be patient with each other and how to deal with people that offend us and how to encourage them 
even though they're different from us. This is all part of discipleship. We don't just ignore the problems. We come alongside each other and we help each other grow through these difficulties. That's discipleship, folks. That's mentoring the way that we're supposed to. And that's why being part of a church is so important. I mean, you can't hold yourself accountable to people that are not in your church. They can't hold you accountable because they never see you. That's why we're not called to be individual, independent Christians. God has saved us so that we will be part of a body that he is the head of. That we would be the hands and the feet that he would use for his glory. But that means working together. That means growing together. That means helping each other as we make disciples of Jesus Christ. We need to learn to grow and to be mature amongst people that God has chosen for us. That God has chosen for us. And what a wonderful blessing this is. You know, we will have friendships with people that we would never have been friends with otherwise if we weren't part of this body. Now, love will be manifested in relationships that we would never have had otherwise. You know, parts of our own sins and our vices will be challenged in ways that would never have been challenged otherwise if we were not part of this church. And we will be more mature because of it. And that's why the church is so important for the process of our personal discipleship. You know, you can find a group of five guys that you really like that have the same thing in common with you. And you can spend time playing golf together. That's no problem. Or you can get some ladies together and you can have breakfast with them and, and encourage each other. And that's, that's great. But it will never be a substitute for the church. It will never be a substitute for the church. Because the church, we need different people. And we need to be this diverse family that God has called us to be in order to grow, in order to mature. And that's where we learn how to love. When feelings get hurt, that's where we learn how to forgive. That's where we learn to show grace. And that's when the opportunity to learn how to love begins. It begins here in the church. Now the fact that love can be commanded shows that it's not just a feeling. It's not a primarily a feeling. It is an action. It's a caring, self-sacrificing commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of others, of the one that we love. By God's grace and independence on the Holy Spirit, you can and you must practice such love, even toward those who are, who are difficult to love. The fact that God commands us to love shows that it's not always easy. It's not always effortless. Now, if love just gushed out of us like a, like a mountain spring, then, then John wouldn't have to be laboring this point. But he does, and he keeps on coming back to it. And as I've said, some of you have experienced deep wounds from, from those who profess to be Christians. And I'll just think about the history of this church 
And I thank God for the healing that He's given so many of you. And I'm so blessed to see, even though some of you have been hurt, you still make an effort to be these people's friends. And that's how we love. That's how we grow. And that's how we mature. As I said before, I'm not saying that loving other Christians will be easy. But what the scripture is telling us this morning is that it is not optional. It is not an option. And God has given us this commandment. And he didn't give us a list of exceptions for difficult cases. And may God help us to love one another here as John in the Bible calls us to love. And may we be the church that God wants us to be. May we be a church that brings the sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. A church filled with agape love for His glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, this morning we do thank you for just the practicality of your word. It truly is profitable, Lord, for every area of our lives. And Lord, I'm not here this morning aiming at any particular person. This is just simply what the scriptures are teaching us this morning. And Lord, we submit to your word. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would take this word in every individual's hearts this morning and help them, Lord, to see the areas where they need to repent of and the areas that they need to get right in. We pray that they would do that for your glory, Lord, that we would be better, we would be more thoughtful in loving the body, Lord, that we would be practically demonstrating your love to others as you have called us to, Lord. So we pray that you give us the grace to do that, Lord, because it is evidence, as we just saw, it is evidence of your great love for us. Lord, you are a good, good Father who loves us more than we deserve and showers his love on us more than we could even think. Help us to be good stewards of this love, Lord, by sharing it with others as well. Lord, I pray for those this morning who, who are still struggling, Lord, to love as Christ loved the church and perhaps are fighting, Lord, this exhortation this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would show them this morning that they need your grace, that they need the love of Christ in their life if they are going to love like this. I think of the marriages in our church this morning, marriages and relationships that need to be mended, marriages and relationships, Lord, that need to grow. We cannot do that without being your children, without the love that you have for your church. So I pray that you draw these, these people that are on the outside and bring them in, Lord, that you would save them from their sins and they would repent this morning of their sins and turn to faith in Christ this morning and they would experience the love of Christ for the first time in their life and they would be overwhelmed.
by your love for us. As we think of this, Lord, we pray. As we meditate on this this week, Lord, we pray that we would display your love and your beauty and your glory to the world around us who is dead in their sins, who doesn't know the love of Christ, who has substituted this joy for earthly love and temporary love. We pray, Lord, that you help us to be ambassadors, help us to be these servants you've called us to be who show the love of Christ. So help us, Lord, to not just be the hearers this morning, but to be the doers of your word. And we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.